0: up before I do so, I'll um, just uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can come and glorify your name. And Lord, that actually uh, is a true place where our hearts can be settled and where where you have designed us to be in awe and worshipping you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that this morning we can open your word and as uh, Peter comes and speaks to us, we pray that you would uh, help us here and help us have the ears to, to listen and hearts to take in And uh, to put that into action as we go. So I pray that your spirit would be uh, revealing things to us as he speaks and your will 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 be done this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. You have your Bibles, Uh, I'm sure you do. So please turn to Revelations chapter 2. All right, so Revelations chapter 2. And for those who have uh, missed uh, the last three weeks, Uh, Just to remind those who are here for the first time, uh, or not been here for the last three weeks, that we are actually embarking uh, on a study of the churches in Revelation. So there are seven churches in Revelation. We are going to do that for seven weeks, and then we go on after that to a study of uh, two Samuels. So, so far we have looked at the churches in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamon, Pergamos, and today we are going to look at the church in Thyatira. Uh, Now, one thing I want to mention to you, that this ancient city of Thyatira exists today. It's not known as uh, Thyatira; It's known as Akisha. So, if you have the opportunity of doing the uh, tour in Turkey, around the seven churches, you'll be probably going to this place called Akisha. It's known as Akisha today. That's Thyatira in the ancient times. So, if you look at the map, you could see that Tayati right here exists uh, west of Turkey, in western Turkey, probably about uh, 80 kilometers from the Aegean Sea here. right? And if you go slightly south, uh, sorry, so, not south, but uh, north, slightly northeast here, and that's where you get uh, Ankara, which is the capital of, of Turkey. That's where Akisha is uh, situated. Now, the... The, the whole city is actually on a very fertile piece of land. It's in a, in a fertile valley. Uh, in the old, it was called uh, the Lucas Valley. And there has to be quite a lot of churches around that Lucas Valley. Right? So that's where our is situated. And today, uh, Akisha is actually quite well known for its tobacco production. Right? Uh, it exports quite a lot of tobacco. That's what Akisha is known for. And if you, uh, if you also know the history of uh, Akisha, going back, of course, to the times of Thyatira, which was the old name. Uh, it's also known today for its export of dyes. And, and if you want to get good Turkish red dye, know that's quite expensive, Turkish red dye. It comes from uh, that city, city of Akisha. So that dye, uh, that dye making actually has its historical uh, roots. Uh, now, before reading uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, I think it's important that we start painting the background or the social context of this whole uh, city of Thyatira. Where was it situated? What was the social context and what was the social conditions that looked like around uh, uh, this whole ancient city of Thyatira? Now, Thyatira actually is not a metropolis, right? So it's quite insignificant when you look at it from a Roman governance point of view. It's not a metropolis. It's a small city, but yet it was quite a wealthy city. That was what Thyatira was. Quite a wealthy uh, city. It was also a city that was a center for many trade guilds. Right? And that's what Thyatira was very known, uh, was known for. So if you look at all of the ancient inscriptions, you could see that uh, out of all the Roman uh, cities uh, in, uh, in the Roman province of Asia, Thyatira had the most number of trade guilds. So you had trade guilds for coppersmiths for tanners, for dyers, for leatherworks, for wool workers, linen workers, so on and so forth. Right? There had so many trade guilds in that uh, city. Uh, in fact, when you re- uh, read uh, Acts chapter 16, you can see uh, one of the uh, most famous uh, citizens of the city of Thyatira. And in fact, when you read her background, you can get also another interesting insight about the city of Thyatira and the influence there. So when you read Acts chapter 16, we're not going to turn to that, but Acts chapter 16 verses 11 to 15, you can see when Paul visited the city of Philippi and he wanted to worship, he couldn't find a synagogue there. So for Jews, when they did not find a synagogue, they used to go to the river to worship. So he went to the riverside to worship and there he met a woman. And I think all of you know her, right? I'm not saying know her personally, but know her from the scriptures. And, and uh, her name was Lydia, a seller of purple uh, purple clothes, Lydia. She was a famous uh, person and she came from the city of Thyatira. So she was a citizen of the city of Thyatira and she was uh, a seller of purple clothes. Now an interesting fact about Lydia is that Lydia was a Gentile converted to Judaism. So most probably what would have happened is that she was converted to Judaism in the city of Thyatira showing to us that uh, the Jewish influence was quite strong in the city of Thyatira. Something that you've got to understand is about trade guilds. As I mentioned to you, trade guilds was quite common in the city of Thyatira. Now trade guilds are really powerful entities. They have a huge influence, both socially, economically, as well as politically, in the city of Thyatira. Now every trade guild used to own their own properties, they made contracts, they wielded quite a wide influence in the city, in religious life, social life, economical, political lives. And if you wanted to pursue a trade, right, uh, if you want to pursue a trade, you have to be a member of that trade guild. And each guild brings about its own specific benefits. It takes actions to protect its own interests. So all of the tradesmen uh, who, who, who are involved in a particular trade come together uh, and associated with this trade guild. But unfortunately, this is what has happened. Unfortunately, each trade guild had its own patron god or goddess, right? Own patron deity. So all of these guild meetings and proceedings and events used to have used to take place in the temple of these gods. Uh, it was associated with huge feasts that is offered to idols, and also To a large extent, sexual orgies used to take place as part and parcel of their uh, spiritual worship to these deities. And that is what happened in trade guilds. So idolatry penetrated, interpenetrated these trade trade guilds in so many aspects. And if I ask you the question, do you know of any trade guild that is existing? Well, if you look at associations today, well, it has uh, its historical uh, roots in these trade guilds. But a famous trade guild that all of you probably might know today, I don't have the picture here, uh, is probably Freemasons. Right? Anybody here know of Freemasons? I'm sure you know, right? So Freemasons is a trade guild. It was a trade guild that was started by stonemasons in the medieval days, and that also has historical roots right back even to the into the time of the Thyatira city. That was that what we are explaining today. Now, the existence of these trade guilds actually posed a huge dilemma for tradesmen, for craftsmen who are believers. Because if they refuse to join a trade guild, if they refuse to take part in any of the rituals that are associated with the trade guild, well, they're, number one, they, lose, uh, they risk losing income, uh, they uh, risk losing support from this trade guild, and also social status and social sanctioning from these trade guilds. So therefore, it actually led to uh, being tempted, if you are a believer involved in trade, to be tempted to compromise, to rationalize an involvement in these trade guilds. And because of these existence of trade guilds at that point in time, that is why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, what does he say? Not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers So in fact, when you go through the context, you'll realize that's what, what Paul was referring to: Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What accord has Christ to do with Belial, Has Christ to do with idol worship. And what agreement has the temple of God, you, um, with idols, with sin, with sexual immorality.? Right? So it was this trade gills that, uh, um, that made Paul write this particular statement of being not being unequally yoked. So there was, as I said strong temptation for believers at that point in time, who were tradesmen and craftsmen, to compromise in order to be involved in this trade gift. The temptation was pretty high. So therefore you would realize that any teaching, any doctrinal teaching uh, that makes such compromise palatable would have found ready ears, right? Uh, would have been quite tempting, would have been acceptable to some of these tradespeople and crafts uh, people. Now, just a, a step back into something else. Archaeology at this point in time also pointed out to the existence of a temple that was dedicated to Sambith. Now, just, I'll just give you a background. A Sam, the Sambith was actually a, a Jewish Sibyl. When I say the word Sibyl, it means a prophetess, a Jewish prophetess. Right? And whether this Sambith or this Jewish Sibyl or prophetess was real or not, we don't know. But there was a temple that was dedicated to Sambith. And some of the Jewish uh, writings, uh, they actually say that the Sambith was one of Noah's uh, son's wife. Right? So we do not know what it is, but this Sambith, or this Jewish shebel used to proclaim events and events used to come to pass. So there was a temple that was dedicated to Sambit. right? And in the temple, they used to have a resident prophetess, a resident prophetess. So some of the biblical scholars, or many of the biblical scholars think that this resident prophetess was actually part and parcel of the fellowship in the Thyatira church. So she was involved in fellowship in the Thyatira church while also being a resident prophetess in this temple of Sambid. Right? It's a Jewish thing. Right? And because of that, they say that the reference to Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20 was actually a reference to this, uh, to this resident prophetess. Okay? Now... I hope that this becomes very clear. Right? And one of the teachings of the resident prophetess was uh, to compromise, to embrace the church, uh, embrace the society in love, to embrace all of these trade guilds in love and let us show love to all, all, all of them. And that was some of the teachings that was prevalent at that time. And you would have now realized as to how this was appealing to the tradespeople and craftspeople who wanted to compromise and to be associated with these trade guilds. So keeping that social context in mind. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Right, So that's the background. So keep that in mind. So I'll read from verses 18, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience, and as for your works. Uh, The last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Verse 23, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come in verse twenty-six, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over nations. He shall rule them with a the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have uh, received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right now. Let's look at the commendation. It's a very good commendation. It says here in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. What a wonderful commendation uh, about the Thyatira church. The church was known for faith, for works, for love, for service, for patience. In fact, it says that the works were growing, right? That's why works, alas, was more than the first. It was growing. Now, if you really stop at verse 19, you would think that this is a fantastic church, a vibrant, a dynamic church, full of service, full of works, full of love. Surely, surely, I'm sure the Lord must be very well pleased with this church. Now, when you look at two words here, it's very interesting because the word love here actually refers to agape love which is self-sacrificial love towards God and towards others. That was the type of love that this church had, real agape love. And the service that is referred to here, it comes from the Greek word diakonia, which means deacons, right? So their service was actually born out. Their work was actually born out of agape love. So when you combine these two words, you can see the type of works that this church was involved in, real works that was born out, predicated on love, on agape love. It would have been a real stunning, a stunning church to be in. Right? Real stunning church to be in. However, in verse 20, the tone changes. It says here, the Lord says in verse 20, Nevertheless, it says, I have few things against you. I have few things against you. They're compromised in doctrine. They allowed this false prophetess that we spoke about just a couple of minutes ago to teach and seduce believers in the church. Now one thing that I would want to point out to you is this. Just because a church, just because someone has real agape love towards God and others, has great service and has great works, does not necessarily make themselves immune to false doctrines And teaching. You can be giant in the works. You can be real giants in works and in love. But yet a real babe when it comes to understanding the deeper truths of God's word. Right? And that is why Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, go on to maturity, go on to growth. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is this. Hey, listen, leave all of these elementary teachings behind. This real, simple, diluted teaching of God's word behind. And let's move on. Let's move on to real growth and understanding, a deeper understanding of the doctrines that is based on the word of God. Now, interestingly, the church in Ephesus had the opposite problem. And that was what Gary spoke about three weeks ago. The church in Ephesus Ephesus had a real understanding of doctrines and were really grounded in the things of the Lord. Grounded in God's word. So much so that they tested, they tried, uh, and they found people who taught false doctrine. They tested them and found them as liars. They had the opposite problem, but yet it says they did not have their first love. So, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, you can see that. And that's what Gary spoke about uh, last uh, uh, three weeks ago. So, for me, when you actually look at the scriptures, you can see that these two aspects, which is your doctrine that is really grounded in God's word, is really different or can be separated from works born out of agape love. Right? I put them as two arrows orthogonal to each other. I I love uh, maths and science. So when I put these two, which means that these two can be quite separate. Right? These two can be quite separate. And that is what we see when you look at uh, the churches, the seven churches in Revelations. Now, one of the things that when I looked at this, I looked throughout the scriptures to see whether what I said was correct or what was said was right. right. You always have to do that. And my reading went to Acts chapter sixteen, sorry, Acts chapter twenty, when the apostle Paul, after completing his third missionary journey, he went towards Jerusalem to keep the feast, and he knew that trouble was awaiting him. He didn't know what's going to happen to him, so he met with the church, with the elders in Ephesus. That was one of his last assignment: was to meet with the churches, with the elders in Ephesus. And Acts chapter twenty, verse seventeen to thirty-eight, tells us of his meeting with the elders in Ephesus and the exhortation and encouragement he gave them. And when you read those passages, you can see from verses 27 to 31 in Acts chapter 20, Paul actually stresses the importance of holding on to doctrines that are grounded in God's word. He speaks of them of one aspect. And then he shifts completely from verses 32 to 35 and he shows the importance of works that is born out of love. Works that are predicated on agape love. So these two are two separate things. It can exist as two separate things. Now, in fact, if you take all of the seven churches in the book of Revelation and try to map this out, this is what I did. Right? (coughs) Again, my love of graphs. Right? Uh, This is what I did. So when you look at this, you can see, for example, Ephesus was a church right, that was quite high in the doctrines grounded in God's word. But when it came to work that is born out of agape love, they were not that good. Thyatira had the opposite problem and Pergamon, of course, that Mikey uh, mentioned last week, had the, same, had the opposite problem. They were a church that had works born out of agape love and God commended for their works, but in terms of their doctrines, understanding of God's word grounded in God's love, in wo- God's word, was low so much so that they entertain false teachings and false prophets. Right, so you can actually map the seven churches using uh, this grid. That's what I did, right? Which is for me quite interesting. Now, what happened to the church in Thyatira? We ask ourselves the question: What happened? What really happened? Now, all what it takes for us and for for the church is to move away to move away from doctrines that are grounded in God's word by just a few degrees of separation. That's all what it takes, just a few degrees of separation. And once that happens, over time you can see there is a chasm. There's a big gap between what is grounded in God's word and what you really hold. There's a big gap. And this is what happened to the church in uh, Thyatira. Now, let me tell you, and let me mention to you, what I'm talking about here is actually doctrines grounded in God's word. I'm not talking of church practice, please. right? So I'm not talking about what songs that we sing, uh, how shall we conduct our service, uh, and those types of things. And I can remember Lincoln Badger mentioned this, and that was quite hilarious. He said, sometimes we, we hold on to our church practices for so long and become so comfortable with it that it almost becomes a biblical doctrine. Right? So let me be very, very care- careful here and t- reiterate and tell you, I'm not talking about church practice. I'm really talking about doctrines that are grounded in God's word. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. How did this degree of separation happen? How did this happen in the church in Thyatira? What lessons can we learn from this? And when I was thinking about this, there are four things that came into my mind. And these four things are very, very relevant today, as it was in the time of Thyatira. And these are four things that we should be mindful of or careful of. First, that corruption happens insidiously, right? So, which means that corruption happens silently, initially without much fanfare within the fellowship of the church. I am sure that this Jewish Sibyl or this Jewish prophetess that was mentioned here did not come with guns blazing and say, hey, this is for the teaching. This is what I'm trying to tell you, and this is why it's different from what you have learned. I don't think she came guns blazing, right? She did it insidiously within the fellowship of the church. In fact, this is referred to in the parable of the leaven, hidden in three measures of meal. So Acts chapter 13 verse 3 tells us this, that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. So these three measures of meal actually symbolizes fellowship meal in terms of the Jewish culture. Now, how do I know that? Well, there are several references to three measures of meal in the scriptures and one famous reference to it was in the time of Abraham. So when Abraham was seated outside his tent, there came the Lord with two of his angels. They came to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did Abraham do? Abraham invited them and said, come, have a little piece of morsel with me. That means just a little piece of bread with me. Right? And they took, up all, they took that invitation and Abraham rushed to Sarah and said, hey Sarah, prepare for us three measures of fine grain flour or three measures of meal. That's what he said. And three measures actually is 20 liters. It was just too excessive, but that was in, in accordance with Jewish culture and custom. So whenever you hear of the reference of three measures of meal, It actually means fellowship. And within that fellowship was that leaven, right? That happened insidiously and inside. And that was how corruption happened in that church. And this is what happened. And I believe that this is what happened when these Jewish prophets worked from within the fellowship in order to corrupt the church with her doctrines. The second, corruption happened due to inaction of the church leadership. Now, one of the primary responsibility of church elders and oversight is to actively protect the church from false doctrines. That is one of the primary responsibility of church eldership. Now, since this Jewish Sibyl or this Jewish prophetess would have been pretty influential. Remember, she was the prophetess, a resident prophetess in this temple of Sambit, which archaeology has really found that there was such a temple that exists in Thyatira. She was a person who held quite an influential position in society. And because she was pretty influential, it was possible that the church elders in Thyatira avoided confronting her and correcting her. That would have been quite possible. It is interesting that the Lord chose to use the term Jezebel to describe her. Now, it's very interesting because I went back to uh, uh, Ahab, to look at the relationship between Ahab and Jezebel, and I found out the reason as to why. Possibly the Lord used the term Jezebel to describe her. Jezebel, by the way, way, was the wife of Ahab. And she caused Israel to sin by making the worship of Baal an official form of worship. And her influence was at the very top. And in fact, when you look at the relationship between Ahab and Jezebel, that Ahab was always under the thumb of Jezebel. Right? He was a very meek man when it came to his relationship with his wife, Jezebel. And so much so that he acceded uh, and he just gave in to all of her demands. He was really under her thumb. And he was in fact the, uh, she was in fact the alpha female in that relationship. Now why I use the word alpha female was because one of my friends very recently told me that his wife is an alpha female. <clears throat> right? So she was the one that called the shots. Right? Silently though. What she called the shots. She influenced at the very top. And probably there's a reason as to why the Lord chose to use the word Jezebel to describe her. Someone who influences at the very top. Right? Silently, insidiously, and within the fellowship. Influence at the top. Thirdly, false doctrines that are the most dangerous. Now, this is something that we need to understand, especially as people who work and as young people. False doctrines that are the most dangerous comes from normal day-to-day activities. So in the church in Thyatira, believers who were involved in craft, in trade, had to constantly deal with spiritualism, constantly deal with that, that are emanating from that trade guilt. Right? And in order to still maintain their livelihood, to engage in all of these normal commercial activities, they were actually encouraged to compromise by these false prophets. After all, she would have said, after all, we should embrace everyone with love and show the love of Christ. That could have been her catch cry. After all, uh, we can work with them, right? We should work with them. And these are the the types of teaching that could have uh, been uh, in that particular church. A little degree of separation is what caused uh, the Lord's condemnation. Now, you might ask the question, what has that got to do with us today? What is the relevance for us uh, today? I believe it's quite relevant for us as believers today. Now, in our normal day-to-day activities, we are always constantly bombarded with different worldviews, right? Every one of us are bombarded with different worldviews. And if we are not careful, it can lead to a slight degree of separation from the Word of God. For example, as working people, we are bombarded uh, with the importance of things like mindfulness and meditation. Now for me, I'm, that's my pet subject, right? They're constantly bombarded with this whole aspect of mindfulness and meditation. And some organisation in New Zealand makes mindful and meditation practice as compulsory for their employees. So when you work for them, you have to engage in those mindfulness and meditation practice. Right? The University of Ottawa, their medical school in 2016, made mindfulness and meditation a compulsory subject in their medical school. So everyone who is going to do medicine there the first year have to take mindfulness and meditation. That's part and parcel of their subject. Now I'm sure you all know that Bible tells us that as believers and Christians, we have to be mindful. Yes. But the practice of mindfulness and the practice of meditation actually is borrowed from Eastern religion. And what this practice tells us is this. That you have to invoke the divine within you. Which means that you, yourself, the divine you, is responsible for the control of all your faculties. Control of your thoughts. Control of emotions. You have to subject your control to you. So you are the divine within you. And that is why many of the Hindus, when they greet you, how do they greet you? They put their hands together and bow like that. That is bowing for the divine that is within you. That's an Eastern religious practice. Right? And that is, for me, a degree of separation from the word of God. Why? Because if you do so, what do you do? You dethrone God. You dethrone the Lord as the one who is in control of your lives. Just a few degree of separation is all what is required. In the work that I do, I'm, I hope that I will not offend anyone here, but in the work that I do, I attend quite a lot of cultural ceremonies. Right, And very often, I'm given a piece of paper. And I'm asked to pray along with the others. Here is it. This is a prayer. Pray along. Right? Now, I'm not a theory or speaker, right? but I'm given this. And sometimes, this prayer actually comes with uh, English words, which is helpful for me because I know what I'm saying. And very often, these English words, uh, if you look at it, it invokes the spirits of the ancestors. It invokes the gods of the seas, gods of the earth. Uh, you know? And what do you do? What do you do in those instances? Do you compromise? Do you embrace it and rationalize that we have to embrace all faith systems? This is, by the way, just cultural, so let's embrace it. Again, a slight degree of separation from the Word of God. In school, school kids, what are you taught? Well, the subject that comes from biology is evolution. Right? Evolution is actually taught as a fact. And that life today is evolved. Life today that we see is evolved from evolution. So you're compelled to embrace such teaching? You're compelled to embrace those worldviews. And if you do so, if you embrace it as fact, as truth, what do you do? There's a degree of separation from the word of God, where God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, that everything that God created was after its own kind. Again, a few degrees of separation. Now, what makes these worldviews so dangerous is that it involves some amount of social cost, if you don't embrace it. And this was true for all of the trades and craftsmen in Thyatira. It's true for us today. Not embracing these unbiblical worldviews draws criticism. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how can we be in the world, but not of the world? And how can we do that? How do we make our faith transparent? How can we make our faith transparent in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces? While not making enemies of others, now that's important. Sometimes we are so gung ho with our uh, our faith that we make enemies of others and create two camps, and there's no way you can reach to them with the gospel. Now this is a topic that I cannot cover today, but suffice to say, all what we need, and the scripture asks us to do, is to have courage, to stand, right, and to bear those social costs, but also wisdom, in order to navigate through all of these dynamics. So to summarize. While the church in Thyatira had works that were predicated on agape love, this was commendable, they allowed themselves to be corrupted, right? Deviating essentially a few degrees from the Word of God. But over time, it reached a point where the Lord condemned them. And the Lord condemned them. So serving the Lord is not only from the heart, right? It's important that we serve the Lord with our whole heart which is our seat of emotion, but we also need to serve the Lord with our, our mind. And that is why Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and Paul says this, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the word prove means to test, to employ your mind and test. We have to test to see what others say is good and acceptable. It's the exercise of the mind based on the proper understanding of the word of God. Now, a quick thing before we close. I know I'm running out of time here. Right. While the church in Thyatira warns us of the danger of not being grounded in God's word, an equally condemnable position is the opposite. To be actually grounded in God's word, but not having works born out of agape love. So that is an equally condemnable position. Now let me tell you this. I'm not saying that it's the absence of work. No, you can have all the works you want. It's not the absence of work. But it's the absence of work that is born out of agape love. And that is why 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 3 tells us that you can have all the works. You can give your bodies to be burnt. Right? You can give all of your possessions to others. But if you do not have love, it amounts to absolutely nothing. So I'm not telling you it's the absence of works, but it's the absence of work that is born out of love. And that is why it's important for us to examine ourselves and ask why we do the works that we do. And if I'm being honest with you, there are several reasons sometimes why we do the works that we do. One of the things that I began to understand when I examined my life, that sometimes I do the works that I do, is because out of duty. The Bible says, go and visit the sick, so therefore I'm visiting you. Of course, I don't tell the person that, right? But that is maybe part of the reason reasons why you're motivated to do so. Completely out of duty. Sometimes it's you're totally motivated by self-praise or praise. Wow, if I visit others, others will praise me. Right? It, it's, it's running in your mind. Some people have this bizarre motivation saying that, I'll do these good works in order to bring condemnation to the elders and the deacons of the church. I know some people do that. Right? They say, hey, the elders and deacons are not doing the work, so therefore I'll do it. I'll go and visit the sick. I'll do that. Why? Because it will condemn the elders and the deacons. Right? So there's different motivation where people are involved with and have in order to engage with good works. And But these are not works that is born out of love. And that is why we got to examine ourselves. And this is why the Lord says, if will read in verse, uh, um, let me see. In verse 23, I am he who searches the mind and the heart. So the Lord presents himself as a judge. And that is why he presents himself to the Thyatira church as a God with flaming fire, with feet as bronze. He appears to them as a judge. He said, I am he who searches the mind and the heart. I am he who searches your motivation of doing your works. <clears throat> so we need, ultimately, to have one simple thing. We need to strive to have a mind grounded in God's word, but also to have our love right? all resting in one place, which is in Christ. And, and that is why I want to sum up by uh, this one verse in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 39. This is what the Lord says: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first works is to love the Lord with your heart. They are emotions, right? With all your soul, through your personality. To love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means by work born out of love. And, And in this little three verses, there's one particular statement that says, love the Lord with your mind. Which is to employ your mind to have a proper understanding of the word of God. Love the Lord with your mind. And my daily prayer always is this. And I want you to have this prayer is to ask the Lord to help you to have your mind and your heart in one place. That's here. One place. To have it in Christ. Thank you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given us to remind us once again, O Lord, of the work that your Son did for us on the cross of Calvary. And that's the perfect example of works. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who was rich became poor for our sake. And Father God, we thank you that through your poverty that we have been made rich. And Father, this morning as we come before you, help us to remember, to understand. And also Lord, to emotionally engage with you to know and understand the love of Christ in our lives. Save Savior is precious and in his worthy name we pray. Amen.